This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hey everyone, so glad you're with us today for Calvary Online. It's hard to believe, but it's been over a year since we started meeting together as a church online. And for the last 10 weeks, we've been meeting both in person in each of our campuses and online too. It's been really fun for me over the last several weeks to start to meet more and more people who tell us that they first started attending Calvary Bible Church on the internet, online like you are today. And I'm really hopeful that over the next several weeks and months, as things get safer and you're more comfortable, that you'll be able to join us in person too. And I'd love a chance to meet you. You'll introduce yourself, tell me your name, and I'll say, it's so nice to meet you. I'm John, John Boyle. My name means a tremendous amount to me. I'm actually named for my father who meant so much to me. He was an amazing dad, a loving husband, a great friend to so so many people. And I want to show you one of my favorite pictures of me and my dad. It's actually a picture of me sitting on my dad's lap when I was a baby, along with my great-grandfather, who was also named John Boyle. So there, three John Boyles right in the same picture. I haven't aged a bit. Being named for someone means in some way that you carry on their legacy. And many of you know that I lost my dad when he was relatively young. It was actually 15 years ago this month, March of 2006, when my dad died, suddenly, unexpectedly. In fact, as we're recording this message, it's 15 years to the day that that we buried him and that we celebrated his life during his memorial service. He was up in the mountains cross-country skiing with many of his close friends and with my mom, and then he collapsed from a heart attack. He was 58. The phone call I got from my mom that day was one of those life-altering moments. Nothing was the same after that. Everything changed. It was the hardest and most painful experience of my life. Lindsay and I were newlyweds. My sister Mary was in college. Our younger sister Catherine was still in high school, 16 years old. And it was traumatic. It was hard for me. It was incredibly difficult for my sisters. It was so hard for my mom and so difficult and painful for our family and friends and so many people who had relied on my dad. And losing my father when I was a newlywed was particularly disorienting to me. My dad had been my closest advisor. He was like a compass who always pointed me in the right direction, gave me great advice and influenced my life so deeply. I loved him so much, and I could not imagine having a father who was a better dad than John Boyle. We all have suffering of different kinds as a part of our story. It might be the loss of someone that we know and love. It could be the pain of disability or discouragement or disease. It might be depression. could be rejection or or loss of all kinds of of a job or a house or a relationship or, or the lack of something that we long for, marriage, children, recognition. And even if we haven't yet experienced personal pain or suffering, we see it in the world. We hear it through the stories of friends and family. 
we know that suffering is an inescapable reality in our world. And when we experience it, whatever kind of suffering it might be, usually one of two things happens. That experience has a tendency, pain and suffering, to push us away from God or, for some of us, to pull us closer to him. I wonder if that's been your experience. If you've suffered in your life, if you've experienced pain, has those those experiences drawn you closer to God or pushed you away from him? Suffering, we know, is a battleground. And as we're in this series together, talking about the real spiritual battle that we face against a real personal enemy named Satan, the devil, we want to talk today about the schemes of Satan in the midst of suffering and our strategies to stand firm against his schemes. What are his ploys and how do we plan to be battle ready? Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll begin in verse, in verse 6 of 1 Peter 5. Peter, who wrote this book, knows about pain. He had personally witnessed the execution of his best friend, Jesus. He experienced a very public moral failure. After Jesus had come back from the dead and and risen and gone back to heaven, Peter began preaching. And because of his preaching, he was arrested, beaten, thrown in prison. Many of his friends were brutally murdered simply because they believed in Jesus and preached the gospel. And Peter wrote this letter in 1 Peter 5 to a group of new believers, of early Christians who also were experiencing suffering. They were being persecuted too for their belief in Jesus. And that's one kind of suffering that we see in the scriptures. There's lots of examples throughout the Bible of God's people suffering. But while there's all kinds of different pain, I think God's remedy for it is often the same. So it's not surprising that when Peter addresses the topic of suffering, he begins by talking about God. You know, that actually happens a lot. When bad things happen, our minds can't help but think about God. Think back to maybe the most recent tragedy that's happened in the world. And when you jump on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and people are reporting the news and sharing it, so many people begin by saying, oh, my thoughts and prayers are with those people who have been impacted. We think about God. Or we think things like, God, where are you? Are you present in this pain that I'm experiencing or that I'm seeing on the news or reading about on the internet? Where are you? Do you know what's happened? Why did you allow it to happen? Do you care? Author and pastor A.W. Tozer said that What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is where Satan does his work, is in the mind. And Satan's ploy when we're in pain is to assassinate the character of God. So that's where Peter begins in our text in 1 Peter 5 by talking about God's character. Look at verse 6 and 7 with me. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, 
he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So what do we learn about God from our friend Peter? First, it's that God has a mighty hand, which describes God and his greatness, that he is all powerful. He's created everything and he's given life to all living things. He's active and interested in what happens on the earth. And the way we talk about that is by describing God as sovereign, like he's a king, he rules, he has authority, he reigns. So when bad things happen to us or in the world, is God in heaven with his hands tied behind his back, unable to do anything about it? No, God is mighty. Another way to describe that is that he is able. God has all the power. He's above all things, even pain and suffering and sorrow. Peter uses the language of the mighty hand of God to remind his readers of the truth about God's character. If Satan tries to assassinate God's character, Peter's aim for us is to affirm God's character when we're suffering, to remember who God is and what he has done. In the Old Testament, there are so many references to God's strong right hand, to the mighty hand of God, to the strong hand of God the Father, and of its power. In Isaiah 48, verse 13, Isaiah says, of God, describing himself, my hand laid the foundation of the earth, God says, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. That's who God is and what he's capable of. Our God is mighty. He is able. The mighty hand of God has also brought deliverance from suffering to God's people. You think of the great story in the book of Exodus, when Moses leads the people of God out of bondage and slavery in Egypt towards the promised land. Moses said to his people, after they had left the bondage of Egypt, he says in Exodus 13, verse three, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. What else do we learn about God and his character from Peter? Back to verse six and seven. Peter says that we cast all of our anxieties onto God. You've been fishing. You've cast a fishing pole. You throw it in front of you. That's what Peter has in his mind, that when you're anxious, when you're worried, when you're despondent because of the suffering and pain that's in your life, you just throw those things to God. It's almost like there is a bank vault and you make a deposit of all the anxious thoughts and worries in your heart and mind. You put it in that bank vault, you lock it, and you walk away. That's what Peter means when he says that we should cast our anxieties onto God, to the God who has a mighty, strong, able right hand. It's amazing to think, though, that we could leave our troubles and our worries with this great and glorious God. Why can we do that? Because Peter goes on to say in verse seven, because he cares for you. God cares for you. 
He is so good. And he wants us to draw near to him, to step closer to him in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our sorrow. Come closer to God so that he can care for us. Psalm 34 verse 18 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Not only does God call us to draw near to him, but he is near to us in the midst of our grief and when we feel pain. We see God's care for us most clearly in his son, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says to his followers, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, writes about these verses and about the caring character qualities of Jesus. He says, the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all of his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No one will care for you like Jesus because he is both great and good. He is at the same time all-powerful and near to the brokenhearted. He is mighty and at the same time, he cares for you. If he wasn't all-powerful, he couldn't care for you. Think about all the needs, all the crises that exist around the world and that God says, you can bring those cares. You can bring your crisis to him. If God wasn't all powerful, he he couldn't care for you. There are just too many needs in our world for someone with a limited capacity. And if, if we didn't know that God cared for us, God's strength, his might, his power would just be unapproachable to us. He would be too far removed from the reality of our problems and our troubles for us to approach him. But God is both mighty and caring. That's why Peter speaks about both of those characteristics of God. So when we're in the midst of suffering and our thoughts turn to God, what should we do? Satan's aim is to assassinate the character of God. Our call is to affirm his character. I think so often when when we feel pain, when we've lost someone we love, when we're depressed or anxious, our countenance looks down. We think about how terrible things are. And we don't often look up to God and to his character. We don't think more highly of God. We often think less of him. That's how Satan tempts us in the middle of pain. So my call for us today is that when our thoughts turn Godward, let's look upward. Let's think about the goodness and the greatness of our God. Let's think about his strength and his might. Let's think about his care and his loving kindness for us. Let's think about the ways 
that God surrounds us with his love as he's mighty and caring. When your thoughts turn Godward, look upward. Look to him. Remember him as mighty and caring, powerful and personal. You know, in the battleground of suffering, our minds don't just think about God when it hits us personally, when pain does. We can't help but think about ourselves too. And so our thoughts turn inward. Now, this isn't always a problem when we look inward. When we're experiencing disease, we need to think about ourselves. We need to know what needs we have. We need to ask for help. If we're depressed, we need to be thoughtful about, am I I struggling? Do I need to talk to someone who can help me? If we're experiencing grief, one of the most helpful things we can do is share with another person about what it feels like, about how it hurts. Share good stories about the people we loved and how we missed them and how that can help lift our spirits. But if we're not careful, those inward thoughts can can turn to self-pity. Like I'm the only one. No one else experiences the pain or the sorrow that I do. No one knows what it's like. No one could possibly understand what I feel or what I'm going through. No one wants to hear about my sadness. I'll just ruin the party. I'll just bring everybody's happiness down to my sadness. Or I just don't want to have to talk about it again. I don't want to have to share the story. I don't want to have to tell them what happened. I don't want to have to answer that question of how am I doing once again. And so what do we do? We sort of isolate ourselves from people. We think about ourselves and we just think there's no one who could understand. And so I just don't want to be around people. That's Satan's second scheme in suffering. To isolate you from the people of God. So what does Peter say? Look at verse 8. He begins in verse 8 by acknowledging the battle that we face with our enemy. It's real. He says, be be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You ever been chased by a lion? Me either. But I can imagine that it's terrifying. I mean, I have heard a lion roar at the zoo and it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And what happens when a lion roars when it's hunting? All the prey that's out there just scatters. And that lion zeroes in on that one isolated animal and gives chase and devours it. Peter says this this battle is real. But resist him. He says, stand firm. Don't scatter. Don't isolate. In fact, he goes on in verse 9 to say, you should know that the same kinds of suffering that you are experiencing are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You are not alone. You're not the only one. All kinds of pain exist in the family of God. Your brothers and sisters throughout the world in our church family experience it too. So if Satan's scheme is to isolate you from the people of God, what's our strategy? It's to integrate ourselves with 
the people of God. How do we do that? Well, with them in community. We need people to pray for us, to care for us, to encourage us, to help, to listen, to distract us sometimes from what's happened. And we can be the people who step in into the lives of others who need us, who are suffering, who who might be isolating themselves. We can come alongside them and say, come with me. Let me spend time with you. Let me hear your story. Let me pray for you. So we can be with them in community, integrate with them together. We can We can also integrate with them as we remember their stories in the scriptures. How have the people of God suffered throughout history? I mean, it's hard for me to think of a character in the Bible who doesn't have a significant story of suffering. So if you're suffering and your thoughts are turning inward, I would encourage you to look outward. Think about other people around the world who have suffered, other brothers and sisters who you might know who have experienced something similar. Or think about the stories of the people of God who have suffered. What have they experienced before you? Bible's just filled with all kinds of stories, isn't it? Some of them that are so traumatic and terrible and raw, it's hard to believe that God would want to include some of them in his holy book unless he wanted you to know that you're not the only one, that you're not alone, that others have gone through it too. They felt hurt. They felt sorrow. They felt grief and loneliness. And even though the Bible is filled with so many examples of God-fearing people who have suffered, Satan gets into our minds and deceives us and makes us think that we're suffering because God doesn't love us. Or maybe it's because we haven't loved God enough and therefore this is happening to us now. But if that's true, how how could that possibly explain all of the stories of the faithful people of God who have suffered? Does God not love them? I mean, let's think of a few examples. At the beginning of the gospel of Luke, there's the story of a man and his wife, Zachariah, and his wife, Elizabeth. And he was serving, Zachariah was, as priest before God. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. And this angel of the Lord prophesies to him about a baby that's going to be born named John the Baptist. Now, what you need to know about Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth is in verse 6 of Luke chapter 1, it says, both of them were righteous before God. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now we know that the angel comes and provides this miraculous birth of John the Baptist who comes before Jesus. But for for their entire married life, Zechariah and Elizabeth had longed for a child. And it took until they were probably too old to have a baby for him to come. And so think of the pain that they lived with. And was it because God didn't love them? Was it because they didn't love God enough? No, what did the text say? It said they were righteous and blameless in the eyes of God. 
It's similar to the man Job in the Old Testament, one of the most famous stories of suffering in the scriptures. The Bible describes Job too, as a man who was blameless and upright in Job chapter one, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And then there's this famous scene in Job one, where Satan comes before the Lord and says to him that he would like to make Job suffer. And the Lord says to him, have you considered who he is? How blameless and upright he is. And Satan says the only reason why Job is blameless and upright is because he hasn't experienced pain and suffering. So the Lord, under his authority, grants permission to Satan to, to make Job suffer. Job loses his entire family, all of his children, except for his wife, and loses all of his fortune. And in it, He never sins against the Lord. And so we look at that and say, well, that wasn't because God didn't love Job or that Job didn't love God. But we tend to think, don't we, as our thoughts turn inward, that God doesn't love me or I haven't loved God enough. One more example. Do you think God loved Jesus? Do you think that Jesus loved God enough? But then what what is the defining characteristic of Jesus? Who is he? He is our servant who suffered. That's what defines him. Our savior is defined by suffering. What does Isaiah 53 promise about our savior? What does it say about who Jesus was and what his life was like? It says in Isaiah 53, verse three, that Jesus was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So when your thoughts turn inward, look outward. Remember the people of God, integrate with the people of God. And when your thoughts turn Godward, look upward. Those are some of the remedies we all can use when we experience all kinds of pain. So how does Peter end our section of text? Back in 1 Peter, uh, chapter 5, verse 10, Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Suffering is temporary, but Jesus is forever. Even if our suffering, our sadness, our pain, our sorrow does not come to an end in this world, and it may not, God's promise to you is that when you are with him, when you see him, when you experience the fullness of the mighty hand of God in all of its glory and the caring arms of Jesus open wide to welcome you, that you will see God for who he is, that all your sorrows and pain and suffering will be wiped away. You know, the amazing thing about pain is the way it awakens our heart and our mind to think about God. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis said that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts 
in our pain. Pain, he says, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There's nothing like it to awaken our minds to the presence of God. And as his people, we need to be ready, prepared for the battle. Will it push us away from God or will it pull us closer to him? Because the purpose of the pain and suffering we experience might be to draw us closer to a God who loves us, to a savior who cares for us. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we come to you thankful that you care for us. Thankful that you are above all things, that you have authority. And we submit to your authority in whatever circumstance our life may find itself. We ask God for your kindness, for your care, for your help as we struggle and suffer. We're reminded, God, that there is a battle and we need your strength to overcome the enemy. So we pray against his work. And I pray, God, especially for any friends today who are in the midst of pain, who are sorrowful, who feel as though they might be pushed away from God because of their present circumstance. I pray, Lord, you might encourage them. I pray you might bring people around them. I pray that we would be the kind of church that would suffer well with each other. For your glory, God, and for our good, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.